Welcome back to Meet the Investigators from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. I'm Nicole Sadek, ICIJ's Editorial Fellow. Today I'm speaking with an Irish journalist who was once a public affairs correspondent turned legal defendant. I know, it sounds like a movie, and a good one. But before we get into that, let's start, as we always do, with introductions. My name's Colin Keena, and I'm a reporter with the Irish Times in Dublin, Ireland. I've been working for the Irish Times since the middle 1990s, and I've been a member of the ICIJ for many years. I've learned since beginning this podcast that most journalists don't have a very straightforward path into journalism. Uh, is that something that applies to you? How did, how did you get into it? I um, studied zoology in university. I then travelled around, did odd jobs, and then I thought I'd like to get a proper job and applied for a course in the law or a course in accountancy or a course in journalism. And only the third journalism college um, responded to me, so I became a journalist. Today, Colm is a leading Irish journalist who's broken some of the biggest business and political corruption stories of his generation. His career-defining story kicked off in 2006. That's when he received classified documents indicating that an Irish tribunal was quietly investigating improper payments made to the leader of Ireland, Bertie Ahern. Colm took the documents from his confidential source, or sources, and published a front-page story for the Irish Times. It was a bold move, and the tribunal wasn't happy about it. The tribunal wrote to us and told us to hand over any documentation that we had. And then we we took legal advice, myself and the then editor, Geraldine Kennedy, a very well-known journalist here in Ireland. The advice was that we have to obey the law just like everybody else. Having received legal advice, we then shredded the documents and told the tribunal that we shredded the documents. And then we were ordered to appear before the tribunal and we explained that we really, really didn't want to be put in a position where we were defying the tribunal, but that we had felt there was an obligation on us to protect our sources. So the matter then went to court because we wouldn't answer any questions that went to the topic of the source or help them identify the source. I felt very, very uncomfortable about it and still do. Even though Colum was deeply uncomfortable and facing possible jail time for being in contempt of court, he also found the process fascinating. The court, usually an opaque institution for Irish journalists, was suddenly very transparent. I've always been interested in public life, usually from the back of the room, you know, scribbling in a notebook, and uh, suddenly I was in the public life. Uh, as a reporter, you often find yourself trying to find out what, you know, what happened when they went into the meeting? You know, and you're trying to ask people when they come out, you know, well, what, you know, privately, what did he say? What did she say? But this time I was actually in the meetings, you know, inside, talking to people and, 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 and so on. So I, I enjoyed that. Colm and his editor, Geraldine, lost at the High Court. Irish Times editor Geraldine Kennedy and correspondent Colm Keener left the High Court this morning disappointed and facing a dilemma. It was in the public interest to publish a story, I believe. And having done so, I felt feeling an obligation to protect sources, so I'm very disappointed. But then they appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided that under the European Convention of Human Rights, we did have a, a right to defend the confidentiality of our sources, but that we had been wrong to take the law into our own hands and we should have trusted the legal system. But it did establish a landmark judgment in Ireland 
in in terms of uh, defending the right of journalists to protect the identity and anonymity of their sources. Colum stands by his decisions until this day and says he's proud of the story. And the editor held a meeting in the newsroom to address the staff about it, you know, and uh, said that it was the best story in a quarter of a century. So I was really proud, you know. And i just tell a funny anecdote. I went on a trade mission with the government about a year after the story and um, it was led by Bertie Ahern, who was still the Taoiseach. And he came up to me and said, I'm glad to see you're coming on the trip and gave me a friendly little tap on the shoulder. But it wasn't really, it was quite a forceful tap on the shoulder with a fist. And it was a little bit sore, actually. And, um, and uh, you know, I, and I live not too far away from where he lives now. And, and we, we bump into each other in the butcher shop and so on. So, you know, Ireland's a small enough place. But yeah, so I was, I was proud of the story. Even though Colm and Geraldine won the right to protect their source, the Supreme Court reprimanded them for shredding the documents and said they would have to pay the legal costs for the tribunal. Remember, the one that the documents came from in the first place? It was a whopping 550,000 euros. It was a lot of money, and it was a lot of money for the Irish Times. Although the Irish Times is a very influential institution in Ireland, it's not a, a hugely uh, powerful one financially. But the, I must say the commercial side of the house were fully behind the editorial side of the house. In fairness, the the, editor, the no the staff generally of, of the Irish Times uh, saw that it was uh, the right thing to do. And it was in that way, it was kind of morale boosting for the organisation. Press laws have always been a sore spot for Irish journalists, especially those surrounding defamation. Are, are the defamation laws so constraining that it almost enables corruption. It does inhibit journalists from doing their job and holding power to account. And, it, and that's just not special pleading. I mean, it really is a problem. And really what we need is for, for some way that, you know, public interest journalism that's done in good faith um, can't involve defamation cases that, you know, close newspapers down or damage them severely. Colum joined ICIJ as a member in 2014. Since then, he's contributed to various projects. I really enjoy working with other journalists from other jurisdictions and, and other cultures and other media like TV and so on. So Ireland's kind of a small place, so it's just good to get off the island every now and then. Colum's most recent project with the consortium involved uncovering the companies behind one of Ireland's most notorious crime families. They're called the Kinnahens and they're known for their drug smuggling empire. Earlier this year, US authorities sanctioned some members of the Kinahan family. The ICIJ then contacted myself and the Irish Times a while ago and said they had some leaked documents that come from Dubai and mentioned the Kinahans. And you could see that around the time that these Kinahans moved to Dubai, they started to set up these legitimate companies and have dealings with the, with the Dubai authorities to get special tax-free zone. And um, it was obvious from the documents that there were even know-your-client type documents in it. So, that, you know, there was no doubting that they knew it was Daniel Kinnan and Christopher Kinnan that they were dealing with. So despite it being obvious who they were dealing with, it's obvious that the Dubai authorities had, had no concerns at all. How is this project different from previous stories you've written about offshore companies? I've been writing about the offshore world for quite some time, but it never really focused in on the extent to which the United Arab Emirates is part of that offshore world and not just 
part of that offshore world, but shamelessly so, and perhaps sees it in its interests to deal with what one of the experts I spoke to calls the grey economy. It would rather deal with the dodgy business people and dodgy business practices and low standards and so on because it thinks there's more money in it out there. It seems that in Ireland, you and your colleagues have been covering it maybe more intensely for a longer amount of time than people elsewhere in the world. Like I say, I, I live in Dublin and we, we have a, an area of the city that's full of all these American uh, multinationals, Google, Facebook, you know, Twitter, they're, they're all here and we call it Silicon Docs. It's down in the docks. And the model is that you set up these headquarter operations here in Dublin. And if you want to avail of the tax advantages of being here in Dublin, you really need a substantial business operation. And so that's why they have these very uh, uh, substantial business operations here and people getting very well paid. But it has a great tax advantage to, to them. And um, they set up these elaborate uh, global networks where all the money flows into Dublin from around the world for sales outside the United States. And this money ends up in places like the Cayman Islands. And I, as a reporter in the Irish Times business section, used to spend a lot of time covering that. One of the larger projects Column took part in was the Implant Files, a 2018 ICIJ-led investigation that involved more than 250 journalists from around the world. I mean, the focus of the implant files was about maybe the requirement for better regulation of medical implants because when it goes wrong, it's such a disaster. But his contributions to this project went beyond traditional reporting. As he was secretly working on the project, he suddenly learned he'd have to get a medical device implanted into himself. So he decided to write a first-person account. I was walking in the mountains outside Dublin and... Uh, I noticed when I was going up steep slopes, I had a strange sensation in my chest. And then when I was on the level, I was fine. So I went to my GP and she said, OK, I want you to leave here and not go to work and go straight down to the, to the hospital. After conducting some tests, doctors found one of his arteries was 80% blocked. A surgeon recommended a stent. So then he brought me into the, into the, um, the theatre. So they don't knock you out, they have to keep you awake. Uh, but they do give you something to calm you down. Then they put this thing in in your in your wrist and go up through your um, your 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 arterial system and they look at your arteries going into your heart and you can see it all on the big screen you know and and discuss it with the guy he was a really nice guy so I was able to tell him that um, I've been working on the implant file story and uh, that uh, you know these stents that he that he was now going to put in were one of the topics we'd covered. We had a good laugh about it, you know. But the whole thing was over in 45 minutes, you know, and, you know, that was a good few years ago, you know, and the, the benefits for me have been huge. On a personal level, I thought what happened to me just showed you how wonderful these implants are. In addition to his investigative work, he's also an author. He's written a handful of books about Irish politicians, but he also published a novel called Bishop's Move about a bishop who lands in trouble with the church and with the government. I took, I took some time out. I went uh, travelling with my family and um, then I think I just had the mental capacity and, and the space to focus on the story that I'd made up and, and try to write it start to finish. And I just found it a really satisfying thing to do. You know, Part of the, the, the narrative that I wrote has to do with political corruption and, and powerful figures in Irish society. And I also introduced the Catholic Church into it, which of course is a huge story 
maybe the biggest story of over my lifetime uh, for, for us journalists here. So I just, I found that of, in, of interest. I wasn't trying to make any political point or any point about public affairs um, when writing the book, but I really enjoyed working on it. Have you thought about writing any other novels? Yes. And f- next week I'm disappearing off the grid for three months unpaid lead, leave and I shall, that's exactly what I'll be doing. <laughs> Whether I'll succeed in doing anything or not, I don't know, but um, I decided it was time to give it another go. So, you know, the COVID, we're all working from home since COVID started and so on. It's been a difficult enough few years. So I'm going to give myself a bit of a break. Good. <laughs> I think uh, we all deserve it at this point. Big thanks to Colin Kina for joining me today. Don't forget to share this episode on social media using the hashtag MeetTheInvestigators. Meet the Investigators is a production of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. This episode was produced and edited by me, Nicole Sodik, with help from Hamish Boland-Rudder. We'll be back again next month.